Today's scripture comes from 2 Samuel. This is our final look at the life of King David. It's the last story we're going to cover, but as you'll see, it's, it, it's not the last word on King David, but it's quite a story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from a month of uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace and with all his master servants and did not go down to the house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat and among his master's servants, he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. The Lord sent Nathan, this is from the next chapter, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come with him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because of doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we tell him the child is dead? He made you something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he'd washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And he went to his own house and at, the request that they served, and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fastened and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat? He fasted, he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. Come Holy Spirit. Amen. What a story. Well, it starts with springtime. It's springtime in ancient Israel, and that means it's time to go to battle again. So they launched this military campaign to finish off the Ammonites. These people, the Ammonites, were uh, conquered in chapter 10 by David's army, but it took the Israelites a year to finally capture the capital, Rabbah. So his men are out fighting, doing this. David is home up on the roof. You may remember when... Um, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars. And in the intermission after that happened, Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry reportedly came up to Will Smith and were talking to him and trying to comfort him and work with him and work through what had happened. And um, I think it was Will Smith who later reported that Denzel Washington, who was a Christian, said to him, when you're on top, that's when the devil comes for you. When you're on top, watch out, because that's when the devil comes for you. David is on top. He's king. He's got men fighting for him. He's got Joab going to war for him, and he's literally on top of the roof. And in nothing more than a glance, the devil comes for him. He suddenly changes the whole course of his life. He sees Bathsheba. She is bathing, she's beautiful, 
He has someone, David directs someone to go get her. She comes to him. They have sex. She gets pregnant. And we know from the quote where it talks about her being in Mensis that she wasn't already pregnant. That's the point of that quote. She was purifying herself because she was in Mensis for a while, menstruating for a while. So that means when she got to David, she was not with child. So the text is telling us it's David's kid. It's not Uriah's kid. They commit this act of sin. And then Leviticus 20, it's clear that the law prescribed the death penalty. If you sleep with another man's wife, both parties, both David and Bathsheba, were to be given the death penalty. That's Leviticus 20.10. So according to the Levitical code, David and Bathsheba are both toast. So David tries to cover his tracks. He pulls Uriah back from the battle zone, tells him to go home and wash his feet, which is Hebrew idiom for being with his wife intimately. But Uriah is such a good guy that he refuses to go. And he swears, you know, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing because he says the ark and, and the soldiers are intense. He's not gonna go home to his wife and make love to his wife and eat and drink. This was standard practice, by the way, during battle, king's men, the king's men, David's men, weren't with their wives. David tries again to get him to go home. He gets Uriah drunk one more time. Uriah refuses to go. And then David goes to his awful plan B. Put Uriah on the front lines and then pull back. Joab, David's right-hand man, his general, follows through, but he alters it slightly. He sends Uriah up there with other men to the toughest part of the Ammonite lines. And Uriah and multiple men are killed. So it began with a glance from a rooftop at an uncovered female and continues with adulterous sexual relations, now winds up with multiple killings. Scholar R.F. Youngblood, Youngblood concludes, and so it is that some of the mercenaries, some of David's men are sacrificed so that one relatively unnoticed might die. Joab was giving David cover. I think he thought, oh, if just Uriah dies and then David takes Bathsheba, it might raise suspicion. So I'm gonna send more guys in and more will die, including Uriah. So that gives my boss cover. This is duplicitous stuff, isn't it? Dr. Dunblood says the literary unit in the text closes with David's criminal purpose finally accomplished. Uriah the Hittite was dead. This doleful refrain is repeated for the rest of chapter 11, each time emphasizing not only a brave warrior's mercenary status, but his unswerving loyalty to his king. Quote, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead, verse 21. Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead, verse 24. This is a terrible moment in the biblical story, isn't it? There, there is no whitewashing this. There is no attempt to get David off the hook. This is like something um, out of the Sopranos, right? It's like organized crime. In this sense, our Old Testament story has the the harsh smack of 
reality. This sounds like something that could happen. After the first service today, uh, a member came up to me and said, yeah, it sounds like modern politics. In a, to a degree, right? Yeah. So I think this lends scripture credibility. Right? There's no attempt to take this hero of Israelites' history and excuse or obfuscate the horror of what he did. You see it, it's all right there. Ooh, and it's ugly. And notice how it escalates from a glance to an action, to another action, to a conspiracy, to multiple murders. Whew. And it looks like, in verse 27, that David is gonna get away with this. Verse 27, after the time of mourning was over, David had Bathsheba brought to the house and she became a wife and bore him a son. But prepare for another hairpin turn on the roller coaster of King David's life because here comes God. <laughs> Quote, latter part of verse 27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. So on this roller coaster, we're about to get a couple of hairpin turns because it seems that David has done this horrible thing, then it appears he's gonna get away with it, then he doesn't get away with it, and it appears he's done for, but he's not done for. Well, first, God sends David's prophet, Nathan, to be a truth teller. David hears this story of this ewe lamb and this rich guy and this poor guy, and David hears it, and it's after Nathan confronts him and says, you are this guy, David is convicted. And he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan is clear, there are gonna be consequences for this sin. By this deed, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. God takes it personally when, when we hurt his people. And the child who is born to you shall die. Another scary element to this, another death. All started with a glance and then illicit activity and then conspiracy and then death on the battlefield and now the death of, a, of an infant. Oh. But bad as that all is, as much as all of that smacks horribly of reality, carnal, brutal, gritty, harsh reality that is in no way whitewashed by the Old Testament, that is not all. Because in the center of this confrontation, there is this remarkable claim as well. Right after David admits his sin, and right before David hears of the consequence of his sin, right in the middle of that, there is this remarkable claim that Nathan the prophet makes as Nathan the prophet, the truth teller, also becomes priestly. Because he says to Nathan, he said, Nathan says to David, right in the middle of this confrontation, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We are not okay. David is not okay. And we face the consequences of our lack of okayness. <laughs> but God is still gracious anyway. 
Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin puts it this way. The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. This was the turning point in the life of David and the clearest indication that he was different from Saul. He found forgiveness in his, when he repented and turned to God, he found there was forgiveness waiting for him. Even for him. Yes, even for him. Saul never accepted his guilt or the rejection that followed from it. Dr. Baldwin points out Psalm 32 is traditionally accepted as expressing David's thoughts on this occasion. Listen to Psalm 32. So David has just been confronted. He admits his guilt. He hears the consequences, which are real. But he also hears, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So he hears the very real smack of the consequences of what he's done, and he hears the remarkable commitment that yet remains by God toward him. And he responds with Psalm 32. David writes this, we think, after he was confronted. David writes, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in, whose, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. So here you get a window that David was carrying this. He was carrying his guilt. And he was feeling it. He wasn't ever really gonna get away with it because it was weighing heavily. And the language here is so vivid. It was killing him. His guilt was killing him. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place and you will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. Scripture does not minimize what David did. David did a horrible thing and there were horrible consequences. A, a destroyed marriage, a destroyed uh, good man, a destroyed child, other men who fell. But yet God we are not okay, but God graces us anyway. This is the remarkable claim that's at the core of Scripture and that's the core of David's life. David was not okay, but God was gracious anyway. I think there's three major takeaways in this for us from this Scripture, this, this moment in the life of King David that we'll end on. It is to be aware of our sin, be open to God's words, and never give up on God's hope and God's grace. First of all, be aware and be careful of our sin. Uh, St. Paul writes to the Corinthians in, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands firm take heed lest he fall. I wonder if, if St. Paul had this story in mind when he wrote that. We're back to what Denzel told Will. When you're on top, that's when the devil comes for you. David was flying high, but boom, from a glance on a roof to a mass killing. Look how bad things got. That's why we need each other. That's why Will Smith needed Denzel. And I think Tyler Perry talked to him too. I think Denzel and Tyler are both Christians. The spirit moved them to engage, right? 
In Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a great concept called sponsors. You meet with your sponsor, you check in, you reach out for help when you need it because they're so aware of the power of addiction to retake us. It is always crouching at the door. In a sense, we're all in recovery. I don't think AA is a substitute for the church, but my mom was an alcoholic before I was born and she got sober through AA. So you're looking at a grandson of AA. <laughs> I would not be here if it wasn't for AA. And I grew up around it, and I'm, I'm, it's a blessing to me. My mom tells her story. It's a very, very powerful one. She had a sponsor. I remember who some of them were. And while it's not a substitute for the church, it is church-like. And it gets something that sometimes is missing in many churches, and that when you're in recovery... You need help because, because you can always, at any given moment, you're one drink away from losing your way. And that's the same thing that happened to David. And David forgot that. Who would you call? Who could you call if you were on the roof? <laughs> Who is in your phone that if you're on the roof or you're in process, you're in recovery, we're all in recovery from something, from sin in some way. Jesus had a small group of guys that he mentored and he sent them out two by two to be with each other. St. Paul had guys he worked with. Who is your sponsor? Who works with you? Who is with you on the rooftop when you're tempted to fall back in? Taking sin seriously enough to shape our lives, to get us the help we need, a phone call away. We all need sponsors. Who is that for you? And then not only having the sponsors, but listening to their words. So taking sin seriously enough to get the support we need and then taking the support we need seriously enough to listen to those words. You and I may be called to be Nathans. You and I may have Nathans called to us. We likely will, not just may. The God who sends the word to us for our salvation will send words to us to work that salvation out. He'll give us these words through each other and to each other. He'll equip us to share them and to receive them. You and I will have moments of being Nathans to each other and receiving Nathans into our lives, not to earn our salvation, but to work it out. David discovered the grace of God that was waiting for him when he repented. His repentance didn't earn God's grace. His repentance helped him see the grace and find the grace that was there for him. Friends help us do that. They call us to that. We need to be open to those words from the word who uses words by sending words to us and who gives us the words for each other. So take sin seriously and be careful. Get a sponsor. Listen to your sponsor's words, you know. Uh, and then also never, ever give up. If there's one thing that David's story and the whole of the gospel calls us to is a posture of wild hope. As Paul reminds us, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance and our God is ever kind and in that is our hope. God who makes the rains fall on the wicked and on the good, as Jesus says. God's heart for being committed to humanity, God's heart in being committed to humanity as he is in David. Even through the consequences of our sin, God has covenanted with us and sticks with us. When you get that inside your soul, it transforms your view of everybody. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, 
there is a new creation. In everybody's life, no matter who they are, there is a new creation happening or waiting to happen. David's life had sin that had consequences. But it's not game over. Just as God through Nathan comes to David in his sin, Jesus comes to us in ours. God is not the contract God who says, fulfill these obligations and I'll be with you. God is the covenant God who says, I love you. If you get off, if you get off my ways, you're gonna, you're, gonna pay the, you're gonna pay some consequences, but I'm still gonna be committed to you. I'm still gonna pursue you. His commitment to you and me, come what may, is astonishing. We are not okay, but God's gracious anyway. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you, David says, while they may be found, while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Sin is dangerous. Consequences are real. We are not okay, but the covenant God is gracious anyway. That is the takeaway core takeaway from David's life. Not his heroism, but God's heroism. In loving us anyway, in sticking with you and me, no matter what, so that when we mess up and we repent, he is waiting there with forgiveness. And even in the consequences of our mistakes, we are not left to ourselves to flounder around and just uh, experience the pain. God will walk with us there, right in that place too. That is how gracious he is. That is the life of David. That's the gospel of David's life. And that's what David invites us to. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. May it be so for you and for me. In Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.